0: How are you guys doing today? We're live. We're, um, we're here with Brian and Sharon, and we're having this show. Hello, hello, everybody. Brian, I can't hear you. Did you turn your volume back up? Um. No, nah, I can't hear you. No. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) This is this is terrible. You might have to. I do not hear you at all. Sharon, can you hear him? No, only you. I do not hear you. Okay, log out and come back in. All right. Well, hi guys. This is Donya and Brian. Brian's going to log out and um he's going to come back in. But we want to introduce our guest. Our guest is Sharon Rowe. Sharon is a librarian in where are you located again? Alamogordo, New Mexico. Yes, and she has done an extensive amount of research in um in in uh African-American history. Brian, can you say something now? Hello. There you are. There's my cousin.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yeah. So I was saying, I was introducing everybody to Sharon and um, just letting them know that she's done extensive research in African-American uh, research. And I was um, going to tell them my first actual experience with sharon was when she had finally found how one of our cousins manda jackson was her cousin it was the most awesome experience i ever had in my life she had had a lot of people just not giving her what they needed to give her they weren't trying to help her they really made her and she and um Mandawa fight to find their connection and they found their connection. And when they did, she got on and said, thank you. She thanked everybody for not doing what they were supposed to do and let them know. And I did it anyway. And I'm like, well, Sharon, tell them how you really feel. So she (laughs)
1: really
0: really let them have it. But yes. So um, real quick, I'm going to say the hellos. We have a lot of hellos right off the break. We have Stephanie and Martha, Mary, um, LaShawn Bellamy. That's that's Loretta's cousin, isn't it?
1: It is. its
0: ah. Hi, LaShawn, um, Dustin, and Karen and Bertram all say hello. And, of course, we never do anything with our, our favorite cousin, Kevin Thomas from
2: Texas
0: (laughs) yes and then we have then then we got people shouting out where they're contacting from which we got people from Chicago and our cousin Odette is online and um, then we have Copenhagen, hey Karen how you doing we have Karen from Copenhagen, Denmark and um, Odette is from Silver Spring I didn't know you lived out here boy and yeah so we have a great group yolanda rowe is online and yes we have just a lot of people that's just saying hello and so hello everybody so i'm going to turn this over to brian so he can you know really kind of give you a background of what's going on
1: so one of the things that donnie and i have kind of been talking about um over the last year or so we're very active on facebook we're very active on facebook genealogy groups as is sharon um, and particularly with African-American focused genealog- genealogy groups, we keep seeing the same question over and over again. Um, kind of like I've hit the 1870 census, found my ancestors. What do I do now? Where do I go from here? So that's basically the whole premise of today's show is filling, helping you fill in those blanks. We have a wide 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 range of um kind of databases websites different kind of records that you can that you can access and also trying to get you to pull more information from that 1870 census which may not be readily available um also well, the 1870 and the 1900 or the 1910 1900 census yeah One, yeah 1900 we're going to get you to go back to those take a deeper look to find any kind of missing pieces or clues that you need to have. So, uh, which record would you like to start with first, Donia?
0: Okay, well, I'm gonna start because you guys gave me such an extensive list. Let's start with the Freedmen's Bureau.
1: Okay, well, the Freedmen's Bureau actually is one of the first sets of records that um, I actually came across when I was researching my enslaved ancestors. especially on my chefy side of the family. And the thing about the Freedmen Bureau, um, I'm not, we're not going to give you a long history lesson, but at the close of the Civil War, uh, the federal government realized that it needed to do a lot of work with the South to kind of bring those states back into the Union. So there was a lot of restructuring. There was a lot of um, soldiering going on, keeping the peace and whatnot. That's what the... That's largely what the Freedmen Bureau was in charge of. Plus there was a lot of abandoned land. Uh, No one knew who the ownership was. So again, kind of allocating land parcels and and all the rest of it. So in terms of researching enslaved people, the wonderful thing about the Freedmen Bureau is they actually have something called the Freedmen Bureau Bank. And like any bank account, you had to go into town Uh, You had to fill in a card, give lots of information. So a lot of people would say where they were born. Uh, If they knew the name of the parents, they would give the name of their parents, the name of their siblings. Um, Again, with female siblings, the goldmine is a lot of them will have their married name. So you can kind of pick up their trail that way. They'll tell you where they're living at the time that they actually filled in those cards, who they're working for. And then you can start taking a look at families that are the cards that are next to theirs, because what I'm finding from my ancestry is it was almost like a family day out. It's like everyone's like, oh, let's go do the the Friedman bank record thing. So, you know, you get aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings. It just looks like they all win. So nine times out of 10, I'm always picking up um, a lot more information. And do you have that link to throw up on, on the screen? I already did it. Already did it. Oh, I added already, it while you
0: were talking,
1: <laughs> you are already on your game. So the free, so you have the link for the Freedman records. So there's the bank records. The Freedmen Bureau also married freed men and women who were formerly slaves. So there are those sorts of records. Um, sometimes they even give you um, descriptions of the people who are getting married. So if you don't have a photograph, at least that's a really good and convenient way to. Uh, to kind of see what your ancestor looked like, uh, there's work contracts. Because right. again, the Freedmen Bureau was, you know, what they were trying to do is normalize working practices that were never normal. So basically, freed people would have a contract with their previous enslaver. Um, who is, now their boss, who is now their employer, or with someone else. You know, They may decide, oh, I don't really want to work for, my old, for my, my old master. I want to work for someone else. But the important thing is all the terms and conditions within those contracts are spelled out. How much they earned, what food, you know, if, there was, um, if they're going to get paid also in food, what food they were going to have, how much food they were going to have. Uh, clothing. Was there a clothing allowance? Were they going to be provided with clothes? what they were. These can be really, really detailed documents. But we're dying enough, I have been finding with um, some of our ancestors, they start listing the names of wives and children. And for one of our Yeldell uh, relations, we found a whole bunch of kids we didn't even know he had. We knew he had, we had about three or four, I think. Was that right, Donnie? And we found about another five or six?
0: No, we found about eight or nine. Eight or nine—that's right. Because he ended up with he—he he actually ended up with twelve kids. That's right. Well, he that's, ended up with twelve additional boys. That's not even including the girls. Right. So he ended up with twelve additional boys.
1: So the—and this is all—you know—you go to FamilySearch.org. Uh, like I said, Donnie has already put up the the link. So you'll see all the different kinds of records that the Freedman Bureau had. There was also um, one aspect of it that i found really useful is freed people still could not sue people who were white they still didn't have access to the courts so instead of getting a white person to kind of act as their guardian during a lot during a lawsuit that's the role that the Freedmen bureau actually um fulfilled so again that fills in a lot of holes and gaps um you, know, you can imagine court cases, they're very thorough. So you can pick up additional family members that way. You could find out what the, the lawsuit was about. Nine times out of 10, it was people complaining that they weren't getting paid the way that they were supposed to. Uh, it was also a very contentious time in American history. Uh, there's a lot of resentment from some parts about newly, free, you know, newly freed people kind of in the, the locality. So there were tensions where there's tensions, there are arguments, fights, disputes, unfortunately, sometimes murders. So again, all of that are in these records. My caveat, the Friedman Bank records is a searchable database. So you type in the person that you're looking for or the surname of the family that you're looking for, where they were living in a rough time frame. And like if you're using Ancestry or you know any of the other big kind of genealogic, genealogy services, it will return records for you to look at. Now, in terms of the work contracts, they don't, sometimes you can, sometimes it does work that way where you can get an individual record for a search. But a lot of the times, it's actually the way they digitize the record. They just digitized everything. So you literally have to just look go through, flip through one image after another uh, until until hopefully you can find the, the people that you're looking for. So those are kind of my highlights from the Friedman records. Uh, Sharon, Danya, do you, um anything else you wanted to add to that? Well,
2: don't be disappointed if your family didn't live close enough to any of the field offices. Because most of my people live too far from the field offices with the people that I've been looking for uh, to appear in those records. But so, what you would want to do is look up where the field offices were and then see which ones of your family members might be near which office and go at it from that angle.
1: That's okay. true. And the good thing about the way the records are, are handled at familysearch.org is on that landing page that explains what the Freedman Bureau was, what they did, the various records they have. When you start clicking on the specific records you want to look at, they will tell you what states they have records for and what county within each state they have records for, because um, unfortunately they don't have them for, for all of them.
0: Okay. Um, we just got a question from Dustin. Dustin said he missed the link and I noticed it didn't go all the way across. So I will post the links here, but at the end we will post all links in the comments so that everybody will be able to get them. Um, so I want to ask a question. I want to ask Sharon, how did you get into research and, and what made you really start going into African-American history, historical research?
2: Okay, the first part of it, 1976, was the Bicentennial, and then Roots came out. So those two together (laughs) did it. Um, What happened was in November of 1976, one of my distant cousins came to visit, and she sat me down and said, Sharon, let me tell you about our ancestor who was a spy for the Americans in the American Revolution. So that did it. Wow Um, Yeah, and it took me a really long time To find out To confirm what she said Because you know what The spies are not in the traditional military records Of
1: course Of course
2: I mean you wouldn't Uh, be a
0: spy If you were in
2: there So Uh, The African-American part came about through my day job as a reference librarian, helping African-American patrons who would come in. So I learned a lot. and uh, I was working in Georgia and South Carolina at the time. And then about 2003, I started doing genealogy classes at the library I was working at then. And so I did an African-American genealogy program. And then as I got into my DNA testing, well, as soon as I did my autosomal DNA testing, suddenly I had these African-American DNA matches. So then I became a little bit obsessed with trying to find my links to these new cousins. So that's when I started combining the DNA with the traditional research, and you know, I have had a little bit of success with that. So, that kind of sums it up. Okay.
0: All right. So, um, well, what I'm going to do now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch back and forth between you guys stuff. So, one of the things that, um, that Sharon came up with was the South Carolina Militia Enrollment 1869. So, why is this a good Thing to use to do african-american research
2: it lists men who are between the ages of 1824 and 1839 and the record says if they are white or colored so you have no doubt about who you're looking at especially if it's people with the same name and it is before 1870 And so it places the people in that county and sometimes in the township um, before 1870. And it also has their ages. Oh, wow.
1: So actually, before we get to the next one, what I would remind people is... As soon as you start researching, well, actually I'm going to say whether it's your free people of color or enslaved ancestors, you, I think you need to take a very deep breath and think about some of the things you're going to find, uh, whether it's terminology, um, the kind of old phrases that were used to describe African-Americans, which are no longer deemed to be politically correct, but you're just going to find upsetting stuff. And... I don't think, I think all of us would agree that none of us would feel as though we were being responsible without telling people, you are going to find stuff, you are pro- more than likely going to find stuff that's going to upset you. So you kind of need to get your head straight, take a deep breath, and then start diving in. Because, um, yeah. you know, we are talking about traumatic and upsetting aspects of of our family history. So I just wanted to say yeah. that just to to get that out there. <laughs>
0: And and that is for both black and white families, because it can be it can be very disturbing for um, an African American, I mean, for a white family to find out that their family actually were slave owners. I mean, yes. I want y'all to really, I want y'all to really think about this. If if you were back in that time period, there were children that was watching black men and black women being hung, being lynched, that has to be something that really, you got to have a a different kind of feeling in order to be able to take that. And you can't think that a child is not, a child is not going to have that image burned in their head. So they were just, they were affected just like we were affected as far as slavery was concerned. It's different areas, it's different stages of it, it's different ways, but still there's, an, there's, there's a problem with it in, its, in, in itself. So if you find out that as a white American, you, you enslaved people, then why would you not think that at one point of time in your life that somebody in your family may have lynched someone and that child saw it? I I think that way. I don't know about nobody else, but I think that way. So that's why I'm saying, you know, it's a traumatic thing all the way around. It's not just for um, African-Americans. It's in general. It's traumatic. No matter how we look at it, it's traumatic.
1: Just because I would say it's a, a slightly different journey, aside from doing your research from now to 1870. Um, because that's classed as kind of modern history and we're more familiar with that and kind of what happen, happened with that. And like I said, once you kind of hit that 1870 pivot and then start going further back in time, it's a whole different trip. And again, for women, and I don't care of what, you know, what nationality, ethnicity, race you identify with, it was a very different world for women. You know, before, um, what was it, 1919, that women got the right to vote?
2: 1914 Yeah, that's.
1: That's yeah. it. It's a very different world for women, too. You know, you couldn't own property. Um, you know, you couldn't sue anyone. You couldn't own property. It either belonged to your husband. If you weren't married, I don't know what happened if you weren't married, but um, it was a very different world for women, too. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Um, following on from the Friedman record, I wanted to talk about the cohabitation registers registries. <clears throat> which I think uh, was something new for for some of the team. So 1866, I think most of them are 1866, a handful are 1865. Uh, Again, part of what the Freedmen Bureau did is they created these what are called cohabitation registers uh, all through the the southern enslaving states. Uh, again, not every state has them. Uh, you go on, once Danya puts the link up, you can go, you can see whether your state has, has these records and what counties within your state have records. I love them because it almost acts like a census for 1865 and 1866, primarily for free people, but there are some free people of color in these. And what they do is they start with the head of the house, what his or her name was, they'll give their age, the county that the county they were born in, the county that they're re- resident in at the time of um, this cohabitation register. They give the name of their last enslaver, which is an important key piece of information that you need. They give the name of a spouse if they have one. Um, even if that spouse has died, they still give the name of the spouse and then it's basically logged whether they're still living or not. And then they give all the names of the, ch- plus the spouses lost in slaver. And then they give the name of all of the children and all of the children's ages. It is such a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. It yeah, recommend- a lot of
0: information.
1: It is, it is. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with is Virginia. Again, not all, not all of them have been discovered in the different Virginia counties. Others have found them, but they're not digitized. But if I remember correctly, I think something like eighty percent of them, uh, for the state of Virginia, have been found and have been digitized, and it is such an awesome, awesome research uh, tool. A companion to that one, uh, same people, Freedman Bureau, same kind of census, is children who've been formerly enslaved, children who are either orphaned or have been abandoned which is horrible and really sad. Um, but again, it gives the name of their parents, whatever information they can remember about where their parents were, who enslaved them, but it also gives you the names of their their siblings as well. So again, cohabitation registers and the 1866 abandoned children, awesome re- uh, resource to use.
2: Any follow up on that, Sharon? I don't think I had heard of the abandoned
0: children records before. Yeah, I, and that one I've really never heard of.
1: I've really only seen it on the Library of Virginia because they have their you can get these records in different places. I'm I'm steering everyone towards FamilySearch um, which yes. links out to the Library of Virginia site because it, it just really explains what the records are, how they were done, the kind of history behind it. But the the LVA site, Library of Virginia, again, has all of these records, and it's just really, really – that's how I found it, actually. And I actually found some of my chefies on, in that abandoned children kind of register.
0: Okay, well, I'm watching the time and going – we're, like, it's almost 30 minutes in already, and we've only done three. <laughs> and we have such a long list. So um, we're going to have to try to speed it up some. But brother said that the North Carolina – Cohabitation records are great as well, and I I had never I you know I told you guys yesterday I had never heard about those, um so that's an ex- that's an excellent resource that we definitely need to go into. Now the one that um that I'm putting up now, the United States Census State Census, that's the one that really really drew my attention, and um this was one that was written up by Sharon as she talked about. Um, so Sharon, I'm going to let you talk about it first and then, you know, I'm going to share my little story as far as the United States State Census for South Carolina is
2: concerned. Okay. Well, I want to put a plug in for census.gov because that's where I got this list and there are several southern states that between 1866 and or 1865 and 1870 did state censuses and of course the information varies from state to state but again it's going to have the person's name age sex race where they were living sometimes it's just by individual sometimes it might be in family groups which we're used to with the federal census so the link is going to be to census.gov, but also there is something on family search. So between those two, you should be able to come up with a list and find out where online they are available. Not everything is online. Um, there is an out-of-print book that also has some of those things. But again, it's a great, and, and we're just talking about 1865 to 1869 right now. But in general, state censuses are a wonderful way to find out information on people between censuses. If you're lucky enough, you're looking at a state that did one. Yeah,
0: my um, my experience with the, the census was actually through our cousin, Natan. She had ordered the census before it had become, I think, on some areas it's now digitized but I think she ordered it before it became digitized from South Carolina, from the Edgeville area. And when she did that, she was looking for some connections to her family and um, what's well, to, to her side of the family, because we're all related. But, <laughs> um, and in the process of her looking for that, she ended up finding my family. She found Jefferson, she found Martha and that's how I found all of my two-time great-grandmother's possible siblings. And as we went through, and Brian and I went through that list, and as we went through that list and we started making the comparisons, they ended up actually being my great-great-grandmother's sibling, And these were the same exact people that were listed in the Edgefield Slave Record book um, that was listed under, it, it was just another confirmation that the that I had actually found my two-time great-grandmother's parents, siblings and everything all in one lump sum in the um Edgefield Slave Record book and it was it was amazing and come to find out my grandfather is named after his father's uncle because my grandfather's name is Jefferson and that's where the name came from there was a Jefferson Brooks and um Yes, I said Brooks, not Yeldale. Again, y'all know, my family crazy. So um, the Brooks and the Yeldales are the same people. And um, that's what I found. They ended up finding, I ended up finding that. And that was awesome with that state census. I think that was just one of the best things that I ever came across. And outside of the newspapers.com. Um, so now I'm I'm going to go to... Brian's
1: favorite, which is Google Books. Google Books. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, We use Google for so many things, and I don't know if any of you have actually noticed, but when you type in Google and it comes up and you can see images, you know, little sublinks for like images, there's one called Books. Uh, The URL is books.google.com, as simple as that. To say that it has a wealth of lineage books is an understatement. And you will need a lot of those books to research the white enslaving families that either you're biologically related to or not, but who would have held your people. An awesome resource. Because again, in researching our enslaved ancestors and especially in terms of building our trees, you also need to start building trees for the people who enslaved your ancestors. So you can start tracking for me it's it's really the only way i can i can actually see how people in my family were were being handled from generation to generation how they were being passed down the family for generation to generation so these books were awesome but what I, my caveat is books are written by humans we make mistakes Some of these lineage books do have some serious flaws. Other ones don't have very many at all. My advice is go onto Facebook. If you belong to a genealogy group, just type in, I've discovered this lineage book. Does anyone have any comments, good or bad, to say about it? Because trust me, the last thing you want to do is to take anything out of them verbatim, and then realize there are a lot of mistakes. But you can also try to research your enslaved ancestors. Um, I have found a lot of written documentation on Google Books and some very, very old published, uh, published books about my ancestors. As a matter of fact, on the, the advert that I'm, I kind of put on uh, the Genealogy Facebook page a couple of days ago, there's a front cover of a book. Can't miss it because it's got the Confederate battle flag on it. But there's two sentences about my three times great grandfather, Daniel Henry Sheffield, from Withville in the southwest of Virginia, where the Union Army had come into Whitville. It started setting fire to houses and hotels and the, the the business district. So he put he and his wife and their kids put the fire out in their in their slave mistress's house, beat that first, put a fire out in the house next door, ran into um down the kind of central bit, the business district of, of Whitville, started putting out fires there. Never knew. I mean, um, I kind of wish there was a plaque somewhere in Wytheville to kind of say, to, hey, you know, Daniel Henry Sheffy kind of saved downtown from burning from the ground. But if I hadn't have just typed in Sheffy slave, that's all I typed into Google Books, those two words, Sheffy and slave, bam. If that wasn't the third thing that I saw immediately, but I also found out more about my white, the white side of the Sheffy family who are one cousins, but two, you know, that those earlier Chefies also enslaved enslaved my family. Uh, so I was able to find, you know, additional names of enslaved people that were held by the family, kind of build out their trees, see how, see how we were related. Google Books, awesome. Um, sometimes you just get a limited preview of the books, and the preview is enough that you can kind of work things out. But a lot of the really old books, you can download them for free in PDF format. I mean, how awesome is that? You can actually start building an electronic kind of family history data uh, library just through Google Books alone. So again- um,
0: Loretta, wanted to, Loretta wanted to be sure to remind everybody to if you're doing research on the Settles family, beware of the Settles book, books because their books are have many inconsistencies.
1: Yes, yes they do. <laughs>
0: So I want to ask a question. Um, Sharon, what are the kind of things that the library offers for people when it comes to doing their research? I mean, you know, everybody knows that when they come to D.C., the first place they go is the National Archives. Uh, So, I mean, is locally you go to your courthouse, you go to your local historic history place or what have you, you local archives, but where are is is the library another spot that a person can go to?
2: Yes, I would want to especially tell people that almost every library is going to have their local newspaper on microfilm. It might not be indexed, but if you know an approximate time period, that you can just sit down and start going through it. And that's true for even very tiny libraries. Some of the libraries that can afford it do have ancestries. My particular library that I work at now, we have Heritage list. The other database that we have that is useful for more modern people, News Bank. And that has, for example, our local newspapers electronically index on that for the last 15 years. But just make friends with your librarians, the best thing I can say.
0: <laughs> okay. So, librarian, they'll be able to help us do anything, is what you, basically what you're trying to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice to All right. Well, the next one um, that I'm pulling up is delayed birth certificates, and I'm going to share an example of one on our I'll share an example while uh, Sharon is talking about it if it lets me pull it up So, Aaron.
2: all right so several states had this for South Carolina was the one that I looked at and the word used is Negroes remember what Brian said and, but I found the delayed birth certificate for people who were born as early as 1856. So that would be people born into slavery times. And the delayed birth certificate is done by the person themselves. So it is a primary record. They have things on there like when they were born, where they were born, who their parents were, where their parents were born sometimes and it's just a very useful document and these became very popular after 1937 when social security came along because people wanted a birth certificate so they would be eligible for social security and a lot of these are indexed on Ancestry and I believe also FamilySearch.org okay
0: i'm sorry it's not letting me pull up the picture for whatever reason that you wanted to share so i couldn't get that i don't know why i have it on i have it but it's not let me pull it up but i do have links for it um so do anybody have like any um questions so far like do you have some place that you want to go I'm, I'm going like this brian because we are like really running out of time fast, and we have such a, a large list.
1: Do you know? I would almost make- say for, for this one, it's kind of probably all right if we do run a little bit over. I mean, if people want to start dropping off, they know we can all, they can always see it on demand. Because okay. as we go as we go through, there's going to be there's bound to be more questions. Kevin, we're just focused on American resources at the moment. Um, I'm sure at some point we will be taking a look at Caribbean stuff, but for for the moment, this really is kind of focus on good old usa (laughs) but that's a very that's a very good question
0: and i'm gonna tell you why he asked that question and 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 when i reach him i'm I'm gonna put my hands around his throat but um (laughs) basically he's asking that question because he just may have found a new connection to the peterson line he was saying and and that's what it's about the peterson line and violet and um and Peter, so that would be a whole new thing, as far as um that is concerned. So that's that's definitely a, a new step for us. Um, Loretta says that Family Search has certain has women has locations in certain cities where you can search and get microfilm that is not digitized on the website. She says she's found a lot like that. There happens to be in there that there happens to be in the town that she lived in. So let me tell you guys who Loretta is. Loretta is the other the fourth person of this three-person group that's in that you see right here. We are the ones that are doing the, the um the DNA project and so this is the these four women, these two women, Brian and myself are the go-to people for the Edgefield DNA project. Um Outside of Sheila and other family members that I have dealt with, when I tell you guys I deal with and an, I have the most intelligent family in the world, I just have the most intelligent family in the world. Um, I'm giving mention to Natan, to Gail Bush, God rest her soul. Um, of course, Sheila, uh, Bernice, I've dealt with her, Brent Bernice Bennett, you know, there have been so many people, Ellen and Ethel and Vince, we've all just at one point or another have crossed paths and been able to help each other guide each other in the direction that we need to go. And it's just been, a, it's just been an awesome journey for me to know such intelligence, such great people who actually know how to get into all of this. And oh, my goodness. And I can't forget Odette and Hamad. Like this right here. Those two, Hamad and Odette, they are the Settle's gurus. So we really, you know, just really go. These are people that we get these lists from, that we talk to, that we try to give information. And so the job right now today is to really share All of the info that we can get to give to you and what we've done to go as far back as we have with our African-American family members and white family members for that matter. Because the same information that we're talking about for the African-Americans, you can find it for the white Americans as well. So the next um, thing that I'm going to put up is for the county deeds in Virginia. That would be Brian. Yeah, Brian, that's okay.
1: the county. Your turn. Mm-hmm. So, basically, and actually, I'm just going to pull back out of that for just a minute. I knew we've been spending a lot of time talking about Southern slavery. Please remember all 13 colonies Ed, yes. had slavery. All 13. So that is, that is worth bearing in mind because I want to give a special shout out to Pennsylvania. Who Pennsylvania in particular has an incredible um, African American database, especially <laughs> during the, especially for slavery during the colonial period, Manumission papers. Manumission was the process by which formerly enslaved people were freed. Um, all of that. Pennsylvania is awesome. I believe Delaware also has really good records, although I haven't I haven't accessed them. But like I said, the caveat is All 13 colonies practice slavery all of them so all of them are going to have varying degrees of records that will be available so going to county deeds what do you mean by county deeds you can imagine every county if you had a transaction of any description there had to be a deed so you can find out you know property deeds more importantly in terms of this conversation would be deeds for the purchase or the exchange of enslaved people from one person or one group of people to another person or another group of people that'll give you who rose the you know who their current enslaver was who the new enslaver was going to be the date that that transaction happened hopefully you will have ages our white williams ancestors who were also enslavers during the the kind of beginning part of slavery were very, very good about noting the ages of all of their enslaved people on every deed that they ever wrote, which is how we got Moses Williams' birth year um, to be able to work with. We knew that because they put his age. So that's really all I wanted to say about county deeds is to get, to get people to, to take a look at them. Again, I'm probably more familiar with Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. In terms of in terms of the availability of deeds and the quality of information that's actually provided of them. <clears throat> uh, can you put up a JSTOR? J at uh, that J S T O R link? I just wanted it's, to do that one real quick.
0: Okay, I will try. For some reason it's not letting me put in
1: more up now. So a counterpart to Google Books is called JSTOR. So that's J S t-o-r um it's much more of an it's much more of a site for kind of academic researchers but again there's a lot of lineage books in there there's a lot of genealogical research that's been published and is available on there you can either log on through a university's computer system or you can log on through your if you have a google email you can log on for free um it's limited in terms of, you know, how many books you can download, how many books you can read at any point in time. But again, JSTOR is going to be another really good um, resource. Things that we don't have links for, but again, is worth bearing in mind, the five civilized tribes also practiced slavery, slavery, held enslaved people for far longer than 1865. I believe they held on to theirs for another 10, was it 10 years?
2: At
1: least five At least five. Great basically the, the federal government had to do a whole kind of treaty with the five civilized tribes to, be, to get them to release enslaved people. I have never looked in their records to see what, you know how slavery was documented within them. but um, if you have access to you know, uh, leaders within the, the five civilized tribes, they might be able to help you um, help you on your research.
0: okay so um i'm gonna go to the next one is is for some reason it's it's freezing on me so i can't add any. i think there's a limited number of links you can add up and i think it's just kind of frozen on it so i'm gonna go now to the 1880 and 1900 census which i absolutely love this was something that um that Sharon had talked about the 1880 and 1890 census, but I can post in the comments. So I will be posting these links in the comments as of right now. Um, But Sharon, why don't you talk more about the 1880 and 1900 census and why they are so important. I actually wrote in my book, why the 1900 census was so important for me. So I, I completely agree with what you're about to say.
2: Thank you. Alright, the 1880 sentence. First of all, I know that there are people here saying, well, I can't get back to 1870, I can only get back to 1880. So you have to consider the possibility that your family's surname changed between 1870 and 1880. And The way I've been able to link some people that way is by looking at the names of the people in the family and looking for that relative same set of names and the other census. So, and this is something I didn't realize was a problem until just a few years ago. And then suddenly I realized that explained some of it. So the 1880 census is the first one that shows the relationship of everyone in the household to the head of the household. Mm-hmm. And it shows the parents' birthplaces. Then when you jump forward to the 1900 census for people who are married, it asks how many years they've been married. For the women, if they're mothers, it asks how many children they have born and how many children are living. So this is a very important thing to help you know if you have identified all of the children in a family. Mm. And then the, yes, and the year is married, that might even get you back to figuring out that they were married before freedom. And, of course, you know, we're not assuming that everybody was not free before 1865. So I did not I did forget to mention that a quick and easy way possibly to tell if your people were free before 1865 is to look for them in the 1860 census. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. of course, And then, Brian, this is for you, but in the 1900 census, they only, they took away for that census the Mulatto classification, so black is the only classification. So you might see somebody who was mulatto in 1870 and 1880 and then suddenly they are black in 1900 and it's not because <laughs> of change. So well, actually, that's that a very was something good... that just kind of
1: up. So Well that's actually a really good point because the whole kind of black mulatto things in both the 18 especially the 1870 was A lot of times it feels to me that it was very subjective. They were basically trying to make a determination by who was standing at the duel, what they looked like, whether they were black or mulatto. Um, I've seen, it has confused me to no end because I've seen someone who seems to have gone from like one race to another, one classification to another, from one census to another. And And it's the same person. I've seen... He, they must have been incredibly fair-skinned people because I've seen the same family as white, black, and mulatto, depending on what census you're looking at.
0: Right. So that's, that. that's very interesting that you guys are, are saying that because, um, my experience with the 1900 census, um, that's where I learned that there was another child, another sibling for my grandfather. And, um, The thing is, is that because the 1890 census was missing, that child was missing. So it was so bad that I didn't know if the child was a male or female. You know, we didn't know anything. We just knew that a child was there, 1900. She had five, so eight children, but five were living. For example, 1910, she had 10 children, six were living. But every time I looked on the census, there was always an additional child missing. So I'm like, Oh my God, there's another kid. And it you know, that, that 1900 census definitely let me know that for, for him um, for my grandfather's mom. And then it also let me know that for our senior family, when we finally found Jane Williams living with one of her children, that's when we got the exact number of how many kids she had. And she had 16 children. Now was all sixteen by my my great grandfather John. Don't know. We're still working on that one, but that's what that census did. It definitely gives you um, that kind of that kind of clarity, and you're like, okay, now I know what I'm looking for. Now we have um, two two comments. Oh, okay. Um, one is from Donna. Adams and I don't know what's going on but my thing is frozen I can't even add my comments up they're not showing Um, but Donna Adams says another resource for finding ancestors is the contraband camp records one I found very helpful was the last road to freedom by Alicia Williams McLeod she found I found my maternal great great grandfather listed on the records for Corinth's contraband camp I have never ever heard of that have you guys heard of that? No. No. I've never heard of that. And then there's a question by LaShawn Bellamy where she asks, "In your view, and this is for all three of us, um how often did EP's enslaved people take the last name of their enslaver?" I want to be the last to answer that. One.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um for me, I'm going to say 97 to 98% had the name of their enslaver and I'm going to tell you why, because they were related to them. They didn't take the name because they were kind or nice or they had warm, fuzzy feelings about their enslaver. They took the names they were biologically that they were bi- biologically entitled to.
0: Okay. Sharon, how do you feel I've about it?
2: Yeah, I've seen some statistics, and I wish I could find the exact citation, but it was a study that came up with six different ways formerly enslaved persons got their names, and I want to say it was something like maybe 20% um, still kept the name. That was when they looked at everybody as a whole. So... And I don't know with the, I don't know the percentage of the people, for example, that my family had enslaved because I haven't found that many people who kept, who I know for sure had been enslaved by my family. So if that makes any sense. Yeah, so here's my thing.
1: Cause I'll I'll give an an example. especially with LaShawn, been researching the Fleming family that were held by the Bowling family um, in kind of central, in Goochland, in Virginia. And no matter who who enslaved them, down the generations, they kept the name Fleming. No matter who owned them, what level of the generation of the family they were in, even when one got sold all the way down to North Carolina, they were Fleming, (coughs) which kind of tells... you know considering the oldest known uh, i think his name is daniel if i remember that correctly he was mulatto and there, there was definitely a, a fleming enslaving family in goochland not far from the bowlings the likelihood is there is a connection that
2: was there Why, you know, that was their
1: family, that, that was their family. Yeah,
0: I I wanted to um, be last because remember when I said my Yeldale family is crazy and I said Brooks, but they are Yeldales. Well, that's the example. In 1870, my great great grandmother, Martha, had named all of her kids that last name of Brooks. But in 1880, all of those names that she could change, she did change and she changed them to Yeldale. So I actually don't know. Which one of those names I actually have a clue And the reason why I have a clue That the Brooks is more my surname Than the Yeldale Because Martha didn't change her last name She only changed her children So I think her children Were more than likely descendants Of the Yeldale line But she was a descendant Of the Brooks line And so far the DNA that we have It is actually proven That she was definitely a descendant of the Brooks line, we we have a fourth. My mom connects to one of Preston Brooks's fourth great grandchildren. And it's it's it on ancestry. If you see um, extremely high, more than likely, that's a that's a that's a, um, a close relative. And it's an extremely high for them, even though it's all the way down the line. It still says extremely high so those are things that you know that I have the issue with and then for my family also with the name Flynn Munn F-L-E-M-O-N and Harrison these people changed their names to that but they were actually Yeldales so I'm not sure why they did it I, I think I know that both of them were enslaved and both of them were enslaved by the Yeldale line. But for whatever reason, the one that changed his name to Fleming, he went so strong with that that he made sure that no, none of his children ever knew that he was actually a Yeldale. So now I have a group of Flemons with F L, like I said, F-L-E-M-O-N-S, I have a group of Flemons who are in this world with a fake name and they don't know that they're actually related to the Yeldale. And then there are the Harrisons where um, we found in a newspaper article, which is one of the things that we're talking about today, but we found in a newspaper article, he turned 102. Was it Brian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was 102 years old. And we found out in that article that his last name was actually Yeldell and he changed it to Harrison. This man has 16 children. So because he has 16 children, all of his kids called by his last name Harrison, when in actuality they're all Yeldales. So this this craziness about whether they kept their name and whose name they—I mean, it, it's a it's a mess. I don't, yeah, it's a mess.
1: Thankfully, I was spared my I was spared that one. Like I said, my especially my <laughs> Virginia peeps. Well, even in a lot of my South Carolina, most of my South Carolina peeps, that surname was their surname they didn't change it but i wanted to touch on the 1870 census because this one that that's really quite important um when you've made it to 1870 you really start to need to look at who your and who your those ancestors were living there um on either side all the way down the page. I would even serve to the preceding page and then the page that follows afterwards. Cause I bet you nine times out of 10, you're gonna to pick up additional family members that way. Now the secret yes. to unlocking that is you have to build out your tree as much as you can. So if the ancestor that you're looking at is say, you three or four times great grandparent in 1870, make, try your best to make sure that you have all of their children, all of their siblings, all of their siblings' children, because when you start getting into like the deeper, deeper uh, slave research, a lot of times you can't get directly to the ancestor that you want to. You have to get. You can only get to them indirectly through a sibling, or a cousin, or some other person. Again, Donnie and I have, you know, and Sharon and Loretta and the rest of us, we've you know, we have come across that time and time again. If we're lucky, it's a straight shot. We can pick up the trail, we can get their parents and their parents. But hey, even dealing with people who are alive and kicking in eighteen sorry, nineteen twenty and nineteen thirty, sometimes we have to actually go a really indirect route to be able to pick up their trail again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to go now to the next one. Since you did the 1870, let's go to the um, United States Census Mortality Schedule, 1850 to 1880. That one is something that Sharon, she got a a good group of stuff. That was one way. And I'll post the picture up so you guys can see it, see what it looks like. Um, And you go ahead and talk about it.
2: Yes, yes. This is the people who died 1st and May 31st of the year before the census was taken. So that would be like for 1850 would be 1849 to 1850. It, it actually has the person's name no matter what and has their sex, age, color and birthplace. In the 1871, they added the parents' birthplace. And, of course, it's mainly, again, like a public health database. is why it was probably done. So it does think, have things like the cause of death, how long they'd been sick, those sort of things. But an enslaved person, it will say something like, John, and then... It will, it might say slave, or it might just have a dash, like John Dash Preston Brooks. And the example that I have is from the 1850 Abbeville District, South Carolina, which became Abbeville County, South Carolina. And this is Thomas, and it says Dash A Tittle. Thomas is male. He is black. He is a slave is what it says there. He was six months old. He died in February. That would be February 1850. They don't know what he died of. And he was sick for 12 days, and he had been born in South Carolina. Now, I happen to know who the A-Tittle is. Is Archibald Tittle. And I was came across this one because the Tittles are one of my brick walls a little bit further back, so I am working very hard on everything I can find out about the Tittle family, the white Tittle family. But this is an example of an enslaved person who is listed by name and the enslaver is listed.
1: Oh, the other thing about the 1870 census is Take a look at where your ancestor that you're researching is living. Do they own the, if they don't own the land that they're on, because if there's not a value of the land, then they're renting. That's, that's a pretty easy one to figure out. Next, if they're renting, just take a look at the names above and below until you get to a white family that actually owns a significant chunk of land and try to work out whether your ancestor is actually living on that white family's land. If they are, the chances are, that was the last group of people or they are related to the last group of people who enslaved your ancestor. That's when you start needing to go to the lineage books. You start needing, you know, you need to start building out that white enslaving family's tree. You need to get their wills. Probate records, which will include in-state inventories, which if if you've never seen an estate inventory, you're going to feel a certain way the first time you see one because it literally lists everything that that deceased person owned in this world, from hairpins to hogs to people. Um, A lot of... I won't say... I'm going to say 50-50, Hopefully, if you're lucky, the enslaved people are, are grouped by family groups, which will make your research a whole lot easier. Otherwise, it's just a straight list of people. Um, and you yeah. have to try, yeah. Uh, and again, the, sometimes the enslaver acknowledged that the enslaved had lost names that they used and will use them. Colonel William Bowling, I have to give the man credit for that. He didn't. He didn't erase their surnames. If an enslaved person on his estate had a surname like Fleming or Crum or Dandridge or Spotswood, he put that last name. He gave them their full name, which, wow. again, for a researcher, just makes it so much e- easier. Because wow. we know what it's like in our family. when I mean, We're looking at estate inventories and there's like fif- 15 different Amy's you know or five different Susie's and Sarah's and we're trying to work out okay well which one is the Susie or the Sarah that I actually I actually need uh my other caveat be aware of nicknames it still blows me that Sally is an abbreviated form of Sarah I thought Sally was its own name yeah
0: that's that's something else that is definitely I, I, yeah, them nicknames. <laughs> the <laughs> so, Carrie, the Caroline, the all, all that stuff comes to, runs together. Yeah. That's why we have a thousand Car- Carrie Brunson in our front, in our tree, and and I'm not even exaggerating when I say a thousand because I swear it's one for every single family. You're gonna find one Carrie Brunson in every last one of our lines.
1: Yeah. Um So the I guess. The the challenge with researching enslaved people is you can no longer get at them directly, like you can do from 1940 to 1870, or through social security application forms, death certificates, marriage records, all all the modern records that we're, we're aware of. Once you hit the slavery period, you can no longer get at them directly. You can only get at you can only start uncovering the story indirectly. That's why you need to research the fa- first identify, and then research the family that held your people. Because once you know that, things like state archives come into play. Um, and again, state archives for South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland—excellent. The, the just the the volume of material that they have available is just simply awesome. Right. Um also, Sharon, did you want to talk? Or oh, I, I can talk a little bit about Fold Three.
2: Yes, go ahead.
1: <clears throat> so, Fold Three is another another amazing resource. It's a uh, fold, literally the word Fold Number Three dot com. Uh, It's mostly for military records. So, if you had an enslaved ancestor who was freed during the Civil War, fought for either the Confederacy or the the Union, there's a good chance that. You can find their service records on Fold 3, which again will have information about spouses if they had them, might have some information about children, might have information about parents, basically people who, are, who were dependent on them. You might um, get information that way. But you also know where your ancestor was. I mean, if he was fighting during the Civil War, you can, you can track his movements because his record will tell you what battles that they actually fought with him um and my last one oh also with full three full three has an amazing um, amount of records about native american for native american research a lot of our both biracial and triracial racial ancestors um, who either had or believed they had uh, native american ancestry started applying to be part of the indian roles those records superb, because again, they will tell you the names of their parents. They will tell you the names of their siblings, if any of their siblings were sisters, and they got married. There's a good chance that her married name will be used. It can even go back to grandparents. Um, I had a free enslaved person coming out of With County who had gone all the way back to her great two times great grandmother. That's the level of detail that she put in her name. Her uh, Eastern Cherokee application form, which I brought up on full three, and I was re- you know reading through it. Um, so again, another another superb kind of a resource to use.
0: Okay, let's get to some of these comments. Um, so Yolanda Rowe, well Loretta said, if you lose someone in a census, try a neighbor from the prior census that lived next to them. Also, sometimes people live with family but are listed with the head of household name instead of theirs. Which is true? That's definitely a true thing. Um, Yolanda Rose said, well, "I guess this was when we were talking about uh, how the, the nicknames, the Molly and the Polly for Mary makes her scream." So she definitely gets where you're coming from from that. And then we have some. Um, I'm gonna go to this person, but before I go to this person, I want to say something. Odette said, "His dad told him." That of his paternal white family owners, that were the Decent family in Abbeyville. Now, Odad, it's really crazy that you mentioned the Decent name, because Brian, do you know what that name is? That's the name that that wants to connect to the um to the project. That's one of the names, Decent. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, O'Day, we need to we need to talk to you about that one. And then there's one from Dustin, and he says, can you explain? Well, be, before you answer this question, let me go to Mac Sewell. He says that this is interesting. You got to remember white people misclassified a lot of these records. I strongly recommend looking into Spanish land grants. Truthfully, the slave narrative is not what we've been told. Research the land, not the people. I want to answer that one. You're right. Researching the land does help us considerably. It does. But it was the, the white people. I don't want you to misunderstand. It's actually the white people that we're researching when we research them and end up finding our overall enslaved ancestors and this is how their narratives are being told we've been lucky like that so i can definitely understand your statement saying you know the fact that they didn't tell the truth basically is what you're saying it wasn't always truthful It wasn't always there but in some instances and in instances for where we're researching in south carolina they had to be as truthful as possible because of tax records purposes, if for no other reason. Yep. You know, they, they they had to be, you know, they had to be truthful because all of this stuff was going on in tax records. So we and these were things that they need to be honest about. And and then when they were selling their estate and selling the land and things of that nature, they had to be honest. So. I don't know. I think I might have to disagree with your comment on that, but I definitely, definitely understand why you said it. How do you guys feel about that?
1: Well, I would imagine a Spanish a Spanish reference record would only really work for a formerly Spanish-held territory. So Florida, Alabama, Louisiana.
2: Texas. Yeah. because the Spanish.
1: And Texas, sorry, absolutely, because um, that record wouldn't help us for Virginia, North Carolina, or South Carolina. It just it would. It would. But,
0: yeah, but because we, you know, that again, and that's why I said, you know, that's a good suggestion that he put out there because mm. we're not talking about just for South Carolina, North no, Carolina, no. Georgia, Virginia. <sighs> yeah. So that is definitely um, a good thing. But I do know from personal experience, and I think I can say this for all three of us. We've found that when we're researching both the land and the people that own the land, we're we're like spot on every single time. We've yeah. not yeah. missed a beat at that point. Um then we have uh, go ahead. So, I'm,
1: so I, oh so, yeah. I, I did
2: I did want to say um, this is why it's important to look at that for record because Many years ago, before the internet, I would be looking at, like, will abstracts, and a lot of these people who did the will abstracts, for example, only put things that they thought were important, like the family members, the white family members, and neglected to leave off things like the bequeathing of the enslaved people. And so when I went back and actually looked at the documents once they came online many years later, then that's suddenly when I discovered that I had a lot more enslavers in my family because that they were on the but not the straps. Wow. Wow. Yes. So Brian, there's a question for you,
0: and um, because you do most of the Google search. Mm-hmm. Um Dustin asks, can you explain how one would search for a lineage book in Google Books or anywhere? Putting in the last name gets every author with that last name. Is there a tip to find family lineage books?
1: Um, my usual kind of Google Books Boolean string and Boolean string is just a fancy way of what I type in. <laughs> I will type in the name of the answer, the name of the person I'm looking for, comma, the word and their spouse, um, either the state they lived in or the county they lived in. So, uh, for instance, I could look for Mahal, you know, Mahala Holloway, comma and Rupert Williams, name of her husband, um, Farquhar, Virginia, um, and you know, and basically see and see what pops up. Because, like anything, the the search results you get back are only as good as the search string. That you actually type in. Now, for someone like if I'm looking for a John Williams, <laughs> yeah, if I'm looking for a John Williams, um, <laughs> I'll put in maybe the the year of birth, year of death, name of wife, name of you know name of name of a parent to kind of really to kind of really narrow that that search search string down. Okay. So I hope that I answered think, your question. I'd like go ahead, Sharon.
2: Okay. To use geographic terms and those types of things too. Oh yeah, yeah. So um I wanna I wanna
0: talk about one other one and this one is my favorite. It's newspapers.com. It's my favorite of course because that's what introduced me to John Yeldale fully and totally. But it's also one of my favorites because that's where a lot of obituaries are. Obituaries are so very, very 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 important. And um they tend to give you the names of children, but they can also be very, 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 very confusing because sometimes those children will then take on the name of parents that really aren't their parents, but these were the people that reared them. So you're sitting here and you're pulling your hair out while trying to decipher whose child is whose and so on and so forth. But overall, I think, places like newspaper.com, you'll be able to see not just the obituaries, but also see the lifestyle of the families and what they had to go through and the things that they, they dealt with all the way back to slavery to the point where you see them actually being sold and then them being honored. You know, very rarely do you come across someone, especially of African-American descent, who is listed in the paper in the early 1800s or early 1900s, Um, But if you do, well, I'll say the late 1800s, but if you do, then that means they did something that made them stand out. So, for example, our our um, our ancestor, Moses Williams, he was listed in the paper. He did a couple of things that made him stand out. First, he had 45 children. Secondly, he died in at at age 115 years old in 1884. So they mentioned him twice. And he was he was very much mentioned, but then in 1900 we have another cousin um is it Enoch Is that Enoch? Yeah. Enoch Peterson. He was mentioned.
1: Or is that Ezra? No, what well, wasn't that W uh William M Peterson, the re- the Reverend Peterson? of was one. both of them, were. Yes. Both of them were yes, WM were.
0: was re um was was mentioned because he was a well known pastor in the spring in the Edgeville area. And um that he was also, I think it even went as far as to say that he was a good Negro. Yeah. I, yeah. I think yeah. it actually said that.
1: It, it did. It did. Yeah.
0: So it is is it's different things like that because he was a quote unquote good Negro. This was one of the reasons why he was not only honored by African-Americans, but he was honored by white Americans. And he died in 1934. Now, even though 1934 seems like, oh, well, that's a reasonable time for African-Americans to start being listed. But let me tell you, they weren't. They really didn't start getting listed in the um, papers until like 1950 or late 1950s, early 1960s. You were very, very lucky if you found something about an African-American in the newspaper before that time unless they did something that was noteworthy yeah. um, or died from something that was noteworthy because Enoch Peterson died from pellagra when it was really big and they didn't know it, it actually turned into an epidemic and pellagra is nothing but vitamin D deficiency but people were dying from that back then and he was one of the first African Americans to die from pellagra so he got no he got Noticed in the paper, he was he was um, mentioned. So it's it's different things like that. But reading the newspaper back then is so it's not only um, interesting but it's entertaining because these people literally had to give you draw you a picture because it wasn't a TV, it wasn't the radio where you heard it, but they drew the picture in their words. So their words were so very creative and out there that you. You gotta get on newspapers.com just to read. I, I I really agree with
1: that. Well, I was gonna say the other really good one was the Reverend Ned Stark because not only did they give that full obif for him because he was a man of a certain he was I, I forget how old he was but he was quite elderly. But Who? the cool thing, um, Ned Stark. Uh, he was you know,
2: ninety
1: six. He was ninety six. Yes, for all of you Game of Thrones fans out there, we have a Ned Stark. In our family, <laughs> um, but the cool thing about his obit was, you know, they acknowledged that he was a slave. They actually said who his enslaver was, who, who had brought him from Virginia to South Carolina. So that that was, I mean, that was all. That was just an awesome snippet of information that would have probably taken weeks to be able to find. Right. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to two other of um, some really really good resources to use. One is called Unknown No Longer. It only deals with enslaved people. It's part of the Library of Virginia's website. We will put the link up in the the comments section for you. But it is called Unknown No Longer. Awesome, awesome resource. And Low Country Africana. Again, wealth of information to to be found about enslaved people on that website too. My kind of honorable mention is gonna be a website called Cindy's List. We're kind of giving that an an honorable mention because while it is jammed packed with information, links to resources, places for you to do your research, it's not exactly user-friendly. So go play around with it, kind of wrap your head around the sheer volume of content and information that it has. Kind of get your head around how Cindy's list actually works. It is a good website. Um, For me, um, to cut a very long story short, I had about 250 uh, ancestral relations who just disappeared in North Carolina about 1820. Didn't know what happened to them. Come to find out they had been enslaved by a Quaker family. Their Quaker owner freed them, gave them money, in his will, and arranged to have them sent to Liberia. And I found the name of the ship that they went to Liberia on, where they settled, and how long they were there for, through information on Cindy's list. So it does work. You just have to spend some time getting used to it.
0: Um, Another honorable mention is the 1850 and 1860 slave schedule. The reason why that's an honorable mention is because even though it doesn't give names, you do get ages and you get gender. And that's a good thing because if you have a roundabout of as far as the age of your your ancestor, you could possibly find them. I know for me, um, the 1850 slave schedule was, was pay dirt because that was the one where I was able to actually make a comparison to the inventory list of names that my great great grandmother's slave owner had to the list that was actually on the slave on the um the slave schedule, and I figured out that it was the exact same amount of people, so if it was the exact same amount of people, then that was them it was the same people it was the same group and I got lucky because, thank you to um rest in peace, Gloria Lucas did the book, Edgefield Slave Record, she had that listing all right there. So I now have every name of Whitfield Brooks's enslaved people for 1850. And I can also say for the 1850 slave schedule in South Carolina, I don't know how it is for the other ones, but in South Carolina, that's the one that's listed as families. So it literally has families listed. And you see it from the oldest to the youngest, and then it'll change again. It may have the male, the female, the children, and then it'll change again. This was how I found my family because of that 1850 slave schedule and the Edgeville slave record book. Jerry, now, do you would, have any other
1: questions? Well, actually, if I can ask you a question, Donia, do you think it was easier for you to find your family group because you had built your tree out and you weren't looking for just one specific individual? But a family group that you could recognize?
0: Um, that's kind of hard for me to say because I was shocked that I even found that at all. I came across <laughs> that by mistake. I mean, I did. I came across it by mistake. I had read a, uh, an article by one of our fellow genealogists, Melvin Collier, and he was talking about how some say, because I think in Mississippi, it's also in um, family groupings. And he was explaining that, and he explained that it was like that in South Carolina, in his art, in his blog post. So when he did that, I was like, "Hmm, let me go back," because I had already found my great—I had already found Martha before then because I knew her age. So because I knew her age, I was like, "And this child was the only one that was 15 in Whitfield's thing." I kind of—I knew that that was her, but I never paid attention to the actual grouping. So when he made that, com- when he wrote that and said that and I read it, and I was like, well, let me go back and look. That's how I figured out. I was like, oh, my God, this is her family. She's with her family. And then that's what made me go through the comparing of the inventory list to the actual slave schedule for him. Counting how many slaves he had on this inventory list, counting how many enslaved he had on his um um actual slave schedule and it all being equal I mean it was just at that point I just started going. So I can't really say, but I think, yeah, if with my tree being built out, yeah, I think I would have come across that. I do I do think that.
2: I do. Sharon, do you have any honorable mentions? I was thinking about sheriff sales. About and, who? I've sheriff sales like when people love um, Yeah. Are financial straits and their property gets sold on the steps of the courthouse. Right. And you will find that in newspapers, um, sometimes just all kinds of places. I've found it in the usgenweb.org inscriptions. That's a usgenweb.org is set up by state and county and it varies. From county to county, what you can find, but they so again, I was looking for the Tittle family, and I came across a sheriff sale in Abbeville, South Carolina, for from a Tittle who was Archibald Tittle, and it was his enslaved persons. And one of the enslaved persons had a very unusual name, Florida. She was not the enslaved person I was looking for, who was also sold at the sheriff's sale. And I haven't been able to trace that person. But I was able to trace Florida and her descendants from that 1856 sheriff sale all the way up from the 50s. So, Okay.
1: Oh, which reminds me, when you start researching the kind of the enslaving family, just do a quick search to see if any of them were involved in lawsuits. And I mentioned that because I'm, working, I'm still working on Colonel William Bowling's, um EPs. I've researched about a third of them down to 1940. But his kids, blime me, suing each other like you wouldn't believe the lawyers must have been happy. They must have gone payday. Um, Because they were. There's just all these lawsuits flying around. But the good thing about that, in each one of the law cases, each one of these lawsuits, and in Virginia, for some reason, they're called chancery suits. They had old, they republished old wills that I could not find anywhere. That was the only way that I got Colonel William Bowling's will was actually because it was part of two of his children's lawsuits. They both included as well. I got an estate inventory, figured out, confirmed the identity of a father for one of the enslaved women's children. Just because they're all, you know, they're fighting over everything. They're fighting over the land, they're fighting over the house, they're fighting over the property, they're fighting over the EPs, who gets what, what did daddy promise them, what was the intent. So you can pick up a wealth of information just by looking up lawsuits
2: all
0: right and i think that's well, my last
1: one i can't even believe that we've come up it's half five
0: yes that's what i was going to say it is five thirty. 30. um sharon you have been such a, a welcome information as always we so appreciate you yeah. being a co-host with us today and just talking about different things with us and letting us know um what we need to do as far as the library is concerned it is so we you know we just appreciate your help all the time and um i'm just so appreciative of you thank you so much thank you thank you um so next week well on the next month's show you want to talk about that Brian
1: i'm happy to to leave it with you
0: okay so i'm i'm trying ch- is that what that's with Tony, right? Next week. Next week. I mean the July. Yes. Or it's Tony. Oh. Yes. So we will have Tony Carrier and Robin Foster on our show July, um what? I think on the first. next show.
1: First is it the first? First of July.
0: No, that's today.
1: Oh, that is today.
0: No, I <laughs> no next week oh no, no, the third show is the one about um that Loretta was talking about. We don't have a, a guest on that show. We have guests on the August. The
1: oh, last this one, August. Next one, we're talking about shifting uh Why knowing the bound boundaries of either your county or state is important right. in your research.
0: Right. So maybe we should have Loretta on since she, you know, yeah. talked about it. So Loretta, if you, you know, if you want to be on... Let, let us know but otherwise it's going to be the shifting of um, boundaries and why that's so important why you need to know it. so basically we're going to be talking about demographics where you know where a person is living and, and things of that nature and um, just looking at how a family can stay in one spot but be in three different counties like we found yeah. I actually found a newspaper article that stated that and she say yes she hasn't responded <laughs> <laughs> but, um, we'll see. Well, I'll call her. I'll call, definitely call her and ask her. But yes, that is next yeah. week's show. So we hope you guys enjoyed this show. We hope you got a, a lot of information from it. Um, I think what I'm going to do, because you can do, we can do this, what we're going to do is create a file. If it's okay with you, Brian, for the genealogy page, create mm-hmm. a file and give all the links on yep. one file as opposed to just putting them all in the comments. And in that way, you guys will be able to get the file, copy the file, and be able to look at all of the links and things of that nature. And don't forget, if you still have questions, we go back and we look at these videos just to check and see if anybody is um, uh, asking more questions. And, yes, that's what I was just saying, Janice Gilliard. She asked, will this segment be archived? All segments are archived on our Genealogy Adventures page, um, YouTube channel. And now we have a video tab that you can click on on the Genealogy Adventures Facebook page, and you'll be able to look at all of the videos there. So um, I'm glad everybody um, enjoyed this show. I'm glad it was full of resources, like all said. And we will catch you guys again next week.
1: Or or on
0: the third Sunday.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing your Sunday with us, Sharon. Such a pleasure to have you on.
0: You're welcome. All right, you guys. Bye. See you later. Bye.
1: Bye.